edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. Hello, this is Michael Kayata bringing you a TSRA podcast on transcatheter aortic valve replacement, TAVR. I'm a cardiothoracic surgery resident at Emory University, and today I'll be speaking with Dr. Vino Thorani, also from Emory, regarding his thoughts on the evaluation of patients being considered for TAVR, including the preoperative workup, interoperative strategies, and postoperative management. Dr. Thorani serves as the chief of cardiothoracic surgery at Emory University Hospital Midtown and has both a research focus and large clinical practice in transcatheter valve surgery. Dr. Thorani, I'd like to start with a case scenario. You are asked to evaluate an 85-year-old frail female who presents with progressive dyspnea on exertion. She now gets short of breath just getting to the mailbox and back. A A transthoracic echocardiogram was obtained by her cardiologist, which revealed severe aortic stenosis. She has COPD and has been on home oxygen for the last year or so. Her creatinine is 1.2, and other significant medical history uh, includes insulin-dependent diabetes, hypertension, and hyperlipidemia. What would your strategy for working this patient up be? Michael, uh, first of all, thank you uh, to you and the TSRA for um, asking me to do this. I really appreciate that. I think that these patient scenarios are becoming even uh, more um, uh, common uh, place, and I think it's really important for the residents to understand how to manage these patients. Um, first of all, this patient uh, would come into our heart valve clinic, and in our heart valve clinic, we actually have uh, four people. And I think this—I start with this because I think this is important. One, it'll be the attending cardiac thoracic surgeon. Next, it'll be a uh, cardiac surgery resident or fellow. Uh, it'll be a valve-specific uh, physician's assistant or a nurse practitioner, um, and then we have an interventional cardiologist who's seeing the patient. In addition to that, uh, we also have a nurse navigator who sees the patient, every patient, for a frailty testing. So when we, when this patient comes to the office, we will obviously uh, do a full H&P on the patient, and also um, uh, if we think that, uh, and, and do a frailty examination, we actually look at ADLs specifically, we look at hand grip testing on the patient, uh, we'll do a five meter walk on the patient, um, and also, um, Uh, we'll do an albumin on the patient. Those four are the ones that we started in the original partner study uh, back in 2007, and we continue to use those um, for evaluation for frailty for these patients. Um, After uh, an assessment of the patient and calculating their STS predicted risk of mortality and doing frailty examinations, we order a battery of tests for them. Those will include the following. A TAVR-specific CT, which is a high-def CT at 1.5-millimeter cuts, which will go to the chest, the abdomen, and the pelvis. Um, then uh, we re-perform the echocardiogram to make sure that we're looking at real severe aortic stenosis. Um, and we look for three things, uh, the aortic valve area, um, specifically three things as far as aortic valve go. Aortic valve area, we look at the mean gradient uh, greater than 40 millimeters of mercury, and we look at a Vmax velocity of greater than four meters per second. If those patients do not have a low ejection fraction, i.e. less than 50%, we do not perform a dobutamine stress echo. If they do have a um, a, uh, ejection fraction of of, uh, less than 50%, we will perform dobutamine stress echo on those patients to evaluate their aortic stenosis. We also perform pulmonary function testing on every patient, looking specifically at FEV1 and DLCO, and we also look at 
uh, carotid uh, ultrasound on all of these patients. So quite honestly, it's an exhaustive workup, but it's very important to look at the frailty issues, the futility issues, and how we think we're going to benefit these patients. Great. So let's say this lady has a predictive risk of mortality of 8% uh, for a surgical AVR. Uh, her CTA of the chest and pelvis is unremarkable with external iliacs about 8 millimeters in diameter with mild atherosclerosis throughout the aorta. Um, what would you offer this patient? So at this, um, just to recap for everybody, in 2016, at least in October of 2016, um, the indications for transcatheter valve or surgical valve therapies falls as, as the following for FDA-approved valves, and there are two of them, the, the Sapien valve, which is a balloon expandable valve, and a self-expanding valve of the um, Evolute, uh, Medtronic Evolute valve. So it is approved for those patients who are considered extreme risk for surgery, for those patients who are high risk for surgery, and for those patients who are intermediate uh, for surgery. Only the Sapien 3 valve is approved for the, for the intermediate risk patients. With an STS score of 8, um, and this uh, patient who is in the 80s and with severe uh, COPD, this patient I think would fall into the high to extreme risk category. Um, and this patient, and uh, for us, having good transfemoral access um, would go into a transfemoral pathway for, um, for therapy for this patient. We would tell you that those patients who have home oxygen and severe COPD, um, you have to be a little careful and make sure that these patients are going to recover. And if we thought the patient was frail, extremely frail, with severe COPD and home oxygen, we may first do a balloon valvoplasty on that patient to see if they recover and do well. And then after that, see them in a month and see if they feel better, go forward with the transcatheter valve. If they do not feel better and continue to have the same exact symptoms, we may have that patient not undergo transcatheter valve therapy. Excellent. Uh, could you uh, walk us uh, through the actual operative approach for a transfemoral TAVR? Sure. First thing I want to say, and this is obviously to a group of surgeons, I think, and I'm pleading to you, that if you want to have be a part of the management of aortic valve disease, and quite honestly, mitral valve disease in the future also, you have to gain transcatheter skills. So I think that it's incumbent on you to get that experience uh, to do that. Um, if, if we as surgeons can't do the transfemoral valve, then I think that we're going to potentially have the, the possibility of losing that uh, five to ten years down the road. Having said that, getting off my uh, uh, soapbox here, the transfemoral, the patient that we at Emory, we have now done over 600 patients where we do the minimalist. And what that means is that the patient is done in the cath lab, awake, uh, with no TEE, um, and um, uh, with conscious sedation, and that's how we would approach this patient. However, it would not be incorrect uh, to have this patient intubated in a hybrid room and done under um, uh, general anesthesia. However, if we were doing this patient at Emory, uh, this patient would be done uh, with conscious sedation with 2% local lidocaine. Uh, we would gain access of the um, contralateral femoral artery and vein. We would put in a pacemaker through the leg. And then um, under what we call road mapping, we would gain access of the ipsilateral side, which would house the bigger sheath. After that's done, we do a, um, a heparinize the patient to maintain an ACT of 250 seconds. And then we do an uh, ascending aortography with an angled pigtail catheter, after which the valve is crossed with an AL1 catheter in a straight wire. And then we're able to exchange this for a extra stiff wire into the left ventricle if we were doing a Sapien 3 valve. 
Um, we would then perform a balloon valvuloplasty, um, followed by, uh, under rapid pacing that is, and followed by the transcatheter valve uh, replacement. Um, we would, after the valve is uh, completed, we would check with aortography, uh, direct cardiac measurements for AR or aortic regurgitation index, and also transthoracic echocardiography. By the way, all of this is percutaneously done, and so therefore we're able to remove all the sheets uh, and the pre-placed uh, per-closed devices on the ipsilateral side of the big sheath would be closed down, the completion angiogram would be done, and then the remaining uh, smaller sheets on the contralateral side would also be per-closed, and the patient generally for us, 70% of the time does not go to the intensive care unit and goes home the next day. Excellent. What steps uh, during the procedure itself are most critical? I think that um, gaining access, quite interestingly, is, is critical in the sense that if, we, if you gain access incorrectly or in the wrong location, you can lead to a, a catastrophic vascular complication. Those patients who have vascular complications have a very high mortality rate. I think that the next um, uh, is the valve deployment itself. If the pacing doesn't work well, you will have an embolization of the valve, usually towards the aorta or sometimes into the left ventricle. I think positioning and getting the sequence of events is critically important, important during the deployment itself. So you have to have the right person calling the shots to start the pacing, uh, to, do, to do the cine, to do the root angiogram, and then a slow inflation in case you need to change the valve's position just ever so slightly in order to have a good outcome. So I think the access and then the deployment of the valve are absolutely the, the critical and, and the parts that really you need to have the most focus on. Uh, with today's technology, what would you do if you had either mild, moderate, or severe AI immediately after implantation of a, say, a sapien uh, balloon expandable valve? Sure. I, you know, and uh, our most recent data that was published in intermediate risk patients and, uh, showed that uh, the amount of moderate severe mitral regurgitation is at a rate at one year is at a rate of 1.5%. So moderate and severe is uh, extremely uncommon. Let's talk about mild, which is a little bit more common. And in those patients, um, I think that you have to make a decision on uh, having a redilation of the balloon of the valve with another balloon. And so commonly we've used the same balloon, the Z-Med balloon, or uh, we've used the same balloon, for instance, if it was the Edwards. If it was a core valve that was placed, um, or an Evolute that was placed, we would um, go ahead and use probably a true balloon, and that's a different type of balloon. Um, so if it was mild, and we think that we, the valve is a little bit under-expanded, we would re-dilate the valve with another balloon. If it's moderate to severe, then we would find out the reasons. Is it too low, meaning is it too much in the ventricle? Is it too high, too uh, aortic? And if that's the case, then you have to place a second valve either uh, below the first one or above the first one. If it is purely um, uh, a under-expansion of the valve, then we would most likely use something called the true balloon to, uh, to re-inflate the valve what we call as a post-dilation in order to get rid of the mitral, uh, or to get rid of the uh, aortic uh, insufficiency. Great. So assuming the patient underwent uh, a successful um, transfemoral TAVR um, with the minimalist approach, like you mentioned, and was transferred to the floor, uh, admitted directly to the floor, um, what sort of complications uh, and um, should we be on the lookout for uh, during that patient's hospital stay? 
So uh, if the patient has done well during the procedure with the echo, we can check that they have no pericardial effusion. We can check that they have no uh, root uh, disruption. Um, they have no pacemaker issues um, and they have good vascular closure. Then those patients really do exceedingly well. They basically are able to um, lay flat for about four hours uh, since we have femoral access. After that, they're usually, if it was our first case, they're eating lunch um, or they're eating an early dinner uh, and they quite honestly uh, do exceedingly well. They go home the next morning after they've had a repeat transthoracic echocardium to confirm that there's no um, effusion, uh, root rupture or disruption or paravalvular leak and they have a gradient that's uh, low. So the patient successfully discharges from the hospital and is doing uh, very well with just class one heart failure symptoms. Um, how do you uh, surveil and follow these patients uh, long term? What we're able to do for these patients um, is we follow them at, at 30 days. In at 30 days, we repeat their transthoracic echocardiogram, we repeat their labs, um, and at that point, uh, we then see them every year. So if they're not in a, um, in a study protocol, that is, some of the studies require us to bring the patient back at six months. But for a commercially placed valve um, and not part of a study, we follow them, follow them on a yearly basis. Uh, in order to, um, to make sure that their valve is functioning well since the data is only uh, since 2007. Specifically, we're looking for increasing gradients and thrombosis of the valve leaflets. So that becomes critically important for us to look at. And so it's really the valve hemodynamics that we do on a year, that we uh, evaluate on a yearly basis. Excellent. Uh, one final question, uh, where do you see uh, this field in five years from now? So in five years from now, where I see this field is that uh, the major, well, all of the extreme risk patients will be done transcatheter. The high-risk patients will be done transcatheter. Uh, now with the FDA approval of one valve for intermediate risk and a second valve most likely going to get, uh, uh, get approved for intermediate risk, I believe that those patients with an SDS greater than four will head towards transcatheter valve therapies unless we see something um, detrimental in the valve hemodynamics at 10 years or five years. The low-risk trials at five years will be done and the results will have come out. And if the results are equivalent, or better than transcatheter valve therapies has a very good chance of, of um, being done in low-risk patients uh, for any patient who has a tissue valve. So there's a lot of forward movement in transcatheter valve therapy at the present time. Excellent. Well, thank you very much uh, for speaking with us uh, at the TSRA. Again, this is Michael Chiata speaking with Dr. Vino Therani at Emory. Thank you, Michael.